Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. They were soft, cute, and cuddly, with names like Legs the Frog, Patty the Platypus, and Brownie the Bear. These stuffed toys soon became an obsession. Not just for kids, but for adult collectors who realized there was money to be made buying and selling these furry creatures on this new thing called the Internet. But like always, where there's money, there's bound to be crime and deception, even in the world of plush toys. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we'll look at how a toy that captured our hearts became a worldwide phenomenon, caused a wave of theft, fraud, and deception, and along the way, changed the way we shopped forever. This is the story of how Beanie Babies went from boom to bust. Ty Warner, the Willy Wonka of Beanie Babies, first introduced them to the world at a trade show in 1993. They were cute, colorful, and most importantly, at only $5 each, they were very affordable. But what made them really stand out was what they were stuffed with. They were filled with plastic pellets, like what you would find in a beanbag. They were slightly understuffed too, making them floppy and poseable. Other beanbag animals had been made before, but none would become a nationwide phenomenon. But before we get too far into Beanie Babies, I gotta tell you about the mind and the man behind it all. Before he launched his empire, Ty Warner worked for a company called Dakin. They were the market leader in the world of plush toys. And Ty Warner was their number one salesman. After he dropped out of college, he drifted from job to job. When he landed at Dakin, Warner soon discovered that he had a knack for selling toys. He was always flamboyantly dressed and perfectly coiffed. He was known for showing up at sales calls in a Rolls Royce, often dressed in a full-length fur coat and a top hat. While working at Dakin, Warner started to develop his own line of plush toys in secret. When his bosses found out, he was promptly fired. In 1983, Warner gambled it all. He mortgaged his home and invested his life savings and an inheritance from his father into founding his own toy company. Ty Inc. was named after him, of course, and was based in a suburb of Chicago. His first toy was a line of Himalayan cats with thick hair and a certain floppiness because they were slightly understuffed and they had plastic pellets or beans in the bum and feet to provide weight. In 1996, Warner told People magazine that no one had put the combination of understuffed with beans. All other stuffed animals were stiff and hard. Well, this would prove to be a crucial innovation. Because with the imagination of a child, these toys could be made to wave, dance, and cuddle. You could toss them in the air and they would land on their bum with a satisfying plop. The Himalayan cats were a hit. Sales doubled every year and by 1992, 
Warner was selling $6 million a year of the furry felines. That sounds good, right? It looked like his gamble had paid off. But compared to his next venture, it was really just a drop in the bucket. Warner got the idea for Beanie Babies after watching the success of his posable Himalayan cats, which sold for about $20 each. He believed that a similar toy in the $5 range would be a huge hit. Warner imagined a beanbag animal small enough for kids to fit in their pocket or their backpack, and they could bring it to school to show their friends. The funny thing is, Beanie Babies weren't immediately popular. After Warner introduced them at that trade show in 93, sales were pretty sluggish. The first year, they didn't really move at all. With so much invested in them, would the gamble pay off? Would people ever fall in love with them? Warner told People magazine in 1996, everyone called them roadkill. They didn't get it. The whole idea was that they looked real because they moved. Gift shops were more interested though in those traditional teddy bears and animals with stuffing, not the floppy toys that Warner was pushing. He didn't give up though and introduced additional lines of Beanie Babies with names like Ally the Alligator and Digger the Crab. And with each new line, they grew in popularity. That's partly because of the way Warner approached the toy business. He didn't want Beanie Babies sold in big box chain stores like Walmart or Toys R Us. He only sold to small independent toy stores and gift shops, which gave the toys a certain air of exclusivity and class, regardless of their low price. And that attracted customers of all ages. Something that wouldn't have been possible if there were mountains of Beanie Babies in big bins at Toys R Us. There was also a limit on how many Beanie Babies each store could carry. They were never able to have the whole line at the same time. All of this meant that if customers wanted all of the Beanie Babies available, they had to hunt for them, and they had to shop around to find every one of the furry little critters. Zach Bizanet is the author of The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. He says Warner believed that making Beanie Babies harder to find would give people the idea that the toys were scarce. What people didn't realize was that as the hike, as the bubble kept kept growing, in order to cash in on it, he was shipping more and more of them to ever more stores. But because you never saw you never saw 500 of them in one place at, at Walmart, people sort of were able to hold on to the illusion that they were scarce. Selling only to small stores also gave Warner something he loved, control. He liked to dictate how products were being displayed and promoted, and his distribution strategy allowed him to keep tabs on what stores were doing and pull the plug on a store if he didn't approve. Beanie Babies existed because of the hands-on approach to their creations. Warner, like Willy Wonka, oversaw every aspect of their design spending months in Korean and Chinese factories, tweaking each stitch and eye placement. When home in the U.S., he would go out each day and check on store displays. And because of this hands-on approach, there were frequent changes to the product line. And that's why changes to the line felt so random. 
For example, Warner released a teddy bear in June 94 as part of his second line of Beanie Babies. Then, seven months later, in January 1995, he re-released the same bear with a different face. It was less flat. And that, my friends, became the first retired Beanie Baby. This would become one of the most important parts of the Thai business plan. But in the beginning, it wasn't a marketing strategy. It wasn't official. It was just Warner being overly picky about one of his products. So the fact that Beanie Babies were a little harder to find than regular stuffed animals, plus the fact that the animals could be changed or retired at any moment, created a buzz. These toys were suddenly collectibles. People began paying up to $10 or $20 for retired beanies that originally went for $5. I was never really a collector of anything. I mean, I used to play with Barbie dolls, but I never really collected anything. So that's why I don't know what possessed me to get like on this mission, (laughs) but that's what I did. That's Peggy Gallagher. She lives in a suburb of Chicago and was one of the first serious Beanie Baby collectors. Peggy would go on to publish three books about beanies. She had a Chicago radio show dedicated to collecting them. And to this day, she still runs a Beanie Baby authentication business. Peggy remembers the first time she laid eyes on one of the stuffed animals. When I saw them, I thought they were absolutely adorable. They had this little red heart tag, and their names were precious. And um, and inside, they had a little poem. Well, I just thought these were the cutest things I'd ever seen. Peggy's fondness soon grew into an obsession. With the help of her sister, she called stores all over the country tracking down Beanie Babies, running up huge phone bills in the process. They compiled lists of retailers around the U.S. that carried beanies and would call them looking for ones that were retired or hard to find. When they found something, the sisters would order as many as they could to build a stockpile for trading with other mums in the Chicago area who had started collecting beanies. She also started working with a distributor in Germany to get rare products from overseas. Peggy says at first, she tried to hide the $1,000 phone bills from her husband, along with any other evidence of her new hobby. Well, yeah, because I didn't want him to think I was crazy. Um, You know, I had just gotten married like in 1990. And I thought, this man's going to think I've got all these little stuffed animals. So I hid them in this upstairs office, in our home office. And I had them hiding in the closet because I thought, oh, my God, he's going to say, what is this middle-aged woman running around buying these little toys for? Peggy's husband, a lawyer, eventually found out. And instead of being angry or disappointed in Peggy's new obsession, he surprised her because he saw there was money to be made. He eventually joined his wife in the pursuit of beanies. Peggy wasn't the only one who jumped on the bandwagon in the early days. Two other women in Chicago, both named Becky, started collecting as well. Between Peggy and her sister and the two Beckys, they bought up every beanie baby they could find in the Chicago area. Demand soared as the toys became scarce. 
As they began calling friends throughout the country to ask them to seek out specific pieces, they helped spread Beanie Mania nationwide. Soon, people were lining up at toy stores to get the latest releases. Newspapers and magazines were packed with classified ads buying and selling beanies. Peggy says she also turned to new technology. We were on the America Online. Uh, that was our email back in the day, and um, and they had a they had a, a like a trading board on America Online. So there were people that were just buying and selling and trading different like collectibles, and. Um, So we were like talking about these Beanie Babies on this little trading board. Initially, people were mostly just trading beanies so they could fill out their collection. Like the old days when kids would trade hockey cards in the schoolyard. But that soon changed, thanks in part to a new website that launched in 1995. One that would change the way we shopped forever. It was called eBay. Author Zach Bizanet says when eBay was first introduced as an online auction and marketplace, it was hard to convince consumers there was a reason to shop online. And then along came Beanie Babies. Which are easy to ship because they're not breakable. You just put them in a box. And you couldn't find them locally. And there were all these rare variations. And nobody knew exactly how much each one was worth. So an auction format was a much safer way for a seller or a buyer to get involved in the market because you knew that you were going to get a fair price in an auction in a transparent market. When eBay launched, it made a concerted effort to attract the collectible market, including people who were buying and selling Beanie Babies. It was a perfect match. The Chicago moms had a way to sell off their product, and eBay had a growing marketplace. By the time of its initial public offering in 1998, Beanie Babies had become a bit of a problem for the company. They represented 10% of eBay's entire sales. There were concerns eBay was too reliant on the Beanie Baby market. What would happen to the website if the fad ended? But Bizanet says the success of Beanies helped sell the public on eBay and the idea of e-commerce in general. They became like a gateway, showing people that shopping online is safe and easy. They were hooked and soon found other things to buy. The same year that eBay launched, a young Thai employee who started at the company working the phones and making minimum wage approached Warner to talk about a new development that existed on her college campuses called the Internet. Up until then, the Internet was primarily a research tool, but college students were starting to make personal websites. And so Lena Trevedi thought of creating a website for Beanie Babies. In his book, Bizanet writes that Trevedi brought her modem that was supplied by DePaul University, where she was enrolled as a student, and demonstrated how the internet worked for Warner. He was intrigued, and he gave Trevedi free license to create a website using her judgment and skills. By the time the first version of the Thai website was published in late 1995, only 1.4% of Americans were using the internet. According to Bizanet, that Beanie Babies website was the first business-to-consumer website, and it was pretty innovative, 
because it featured a blog that contained multiple entries per day, a trading post, featured fan mail, and a list of 101 things to do with a Beanie Baby. It sounds kind of quaint now, but remember, this was 1995. No one was using the internet like this. And it led to another innovation, crowdsourcing and audience engagement. In 1996, Trevedi coordinated fan involvement in the creation of the 100th Beanie Baby character through the internet. Trevedi also played a role in another important part of Beanie Babies. She was the one who suggested adding a birth date and a poem inside the little red heart tag on each beanie. After pitching the idea to Warner, she did a mock-up for Stripes the Tiger. It read, Stripes was never fierce nor strong, so with tigers he didn't get along. Jungle life was hard getting by, so he came to his friends at Thai. She gave him the birth date of June 11th, 1995. Bizonette writes in the great Beanie Baby bubble that Warner liked the idea and instructed Trevedi to come up with a poem for the entire collection in just two days. As casual interest turned to absolute mania at the end of 1995, prices for rare or discontinued beanies grew and grew. One of the most valuable was Peanut, the Royal Blue Elephant which at one point had a secondary market value of about $6,200. Other rare beanies like Chili the Polar Bear and Bongo the Monkey could also fetch up to $6,000. Ty fed into the craze and now made retirements a regular thing. Three times a year, the company introduced a new line of Beanie Baby figures. There were usually nine new figures in a new line, at the same time, the company retired older models. As soon as a beanie was retired, it would automatically jump in value, sometimes as much as 500%. So in anticipation, speculators started buying up as many beanies as they could when they were first released. They'd put the stuffed animals away, careful to preserve the heart hang tag, waiting for the day they were retired and could turn around and sell them for a profit. Instead of buying and selling stocks, people were buying and selling beanbag animals hoping to get rich. Media coverage from the late 90s talks about people dumping traditional stocks to invest their money in beanie babies. Toys had become long-term investments. The Toronto Star reported in November 1998 that a local man named Brian Duquette gave up his $70,000 a year job as a newspaper printer to sell Beanie Babies full time. Calling his company the Canadian Beanie Hunter, Duquette told the paper he sold an average of 20,000 Beanie Babies a month and earned $33,000 in just three months. He purchased beanies from a network of 140 Canadian outlets, then resold them in the US and Great Britain for a profit. Duquette said he even sold Beanie Babies to hockey legend Bobby Hull and actress Rita Wilson, wife of Tom Hanks. The craze was real. It wasn't uncommon for people to line up outside stores when they knew a delivery was coming. Retailers would sell out within hours. A shop owner in Connecticut remembers what it was like when a shipment would arrive. 
He told the Los Angeles Times that he would hand out shopping bags to the hundreds of people lined up outside his store. They were allowed to buy as many beanies as they could fit in one bag. And for most, that wasn't enough. They wanted more. The toy business can be cutthroat, and often the ones that get to the top are the ones with the biggest marketing budgets. But not Beanie Babies. Ty did zero traditional advertising for the product. The excitement was organic and generated all by word of mouth. And Ty Warner, the man behind one of the biggest toy crazes of all time, was incredibly elusive. He refused interviews. He refused to put Ty Inc.'s name on its headquarters. The company's phone number was unlisted, making it extremely difficult for anyone to reach them, even customers. By 1997, Ty's sales reached an all-time high of $1.3 billion. Warner's personal pre-tax income surpassed $700 million. But he maintained such a low profile that Forbes initially left him off its 1998 list of wealthiest Americans. He debuted on the list in 1999 with an estimated net worth of $4 billion. The mastermind behind Beanie Babies, still considered the most successful toy launch in U.S. history, is one of the most secretive. To date, Warner has granted only one in-depth interview in 1999 to People magazine. According to Zach Bizanet's book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Ty Warner turned down hundreds, if not thousands, of licensing deals for cereal, apparel, books, and pretty much every other consumer good. He even refused to take calls from people at Steven Spielberg's office who wanted to talk about a possible movie. But when McDonald's called, Warner was all ears. After months of negotiations, Warner and McDonald's agreed on a $100 million deal to put teeny beanie babies in Happy Meals. The campaign launched on April 11, 1997. Restaurants were inundated with people calling to see which beanie they had in stock. Locations were flooded with people buying up as many Happy Meals as they could. Customers were limited to five beanies per visit, with a two-hour waiting period between visits. Two weeks into the planned five-week promotion, McDonald's had to pull the plug. They took out ads to announce they had run out completely of teeny beanie babies. Another successful promotion involving beanie babies is credited with saving Major League Baseball. Okay, that might be a bit of a stretch, but there is definitely some merit to this idea, so stick with me. The 1997 baseball season started off terribly for the Chicago Cubs. They had lost their first 14 games. Attendance was at an all-time low. Then the Cubs' vice president of marketing approached Ty Warner with a promotional plan. John McDonough had been inspired by his daughter, Colleen, a devoted Beanie Baby collector. He was helping her put her Beanie Babies in a basket and said, which one is this? And she said, that's Cubby. Immediately, a light bulb went off. Lucky for McDonough, Warner was a lifelong Cubs fan. So for only the second time ever, he allowed Beanie Babies to be used for a promotion. 
A capacity crowd of nearly 38,000 people flooded Wrigley Field on May 18, 1997. And the first 10,000 children took home a limited edition Cubby the Bear. It was the Cubs' biggest ticket draw since the team's first home night game in 1988. Not surprisingly, other teams followed suit. 13 clubs held Beanie Baby promotions in 1998. Five days after hosting just over 16,000 fans for a game on May 12, 1998, a stuffed bear named Valentino brought 49,000 fans to Yankee Stadium. From 1998 to 2001, the Cubs held 13 Beanie Babies promotions, selling out every date. And overall MLB attendance rose 37% for those games. The timing was perfect. Baseball teams were looking to find ways to fill seats following the steroid scandal of the late 90s. Who knew beanies would be the home run they were looking for? Over the years, Ty released other special beanies that you might remember, including the Diana Bear, which was released just two months after the death of the Princess of Wales on August 31st, 1997. The proceeds from the Royal Purple Bear, which topped $21 million, were donated to the Diana Princess of Wales Memorial Fund. The Beanie Babies craze seemed to touch almost every segment of society. A poll taken by USA Weekend in 1998 found that 64% of all Americans owned at least one Beanie Baby. Unfortunately, what started off as a cute, cuddly toy for kids really seemed to bring out the worst in people. Kids were trampled at Beanie Baby sales, and fistfights weren't uncommon when new shipments arrived at stores. And in one well-publicized divorce, a couple in Las Vegas who couldn't agree on how to split up their Beanie Baby collection were ordered by a judge to divide up the beanies one by one in the courtroom. A pile of Beanie Babies worth up to $5,000 was dumped on the floor of the courtroom and the couple split them up under the judge's supervision. There is a great photo you can find online that shows the absurdity of the whole thing. The craziness of Beanie Babies didn't stop at custody battles. And while it seems almost ridiculous to imagine now, Beanie Babies led to a wave of criminal activity. Here's Zach Bizanet. Very quickly, it did just turn into a gold rush. And that was where it started to get a little dark and creepy. You had stuff like, you know, the tie at one time put the heart logo on the outside of each box when they shipped them. And then people were stalking UPS trucks and people were stealing them out of the back of, of trucks. And so they had to take the heart off the logo, off the box. First, there was the counterfeiting. In Ridgewood, New Jersey, a store owner was charged with illegally importing 6,500 counterfeit Beanie Babies from China and conspiring to sell the popular stuffed animals for as much as $1,500 each. Then came internet fraud, as scam artists used the internet to build collectors. In Pensacola, Florida, a woman named Melissa Ann Stever auctioned off rare editions online for more than $1,000 a pop then failed to deliver the goods. Stever was arrested in February 98, 
on multiple counts of grand theft after a Tennessee collector paid $2,500 for Nana the monkey or Chili the polar bear that were never delivered. And if that wasn't bad enough, violent robberies and even a murder would follow. In March 1999, a burglar dubbed the Beanie Baby Bandit stole a litter of 200 animals from a store in Centreport, New York. And in October 99, a dispute over several hundred dollars worth of Beanie Babies played a part in the murder of Harry Simmons. The security guard at a lumber yard in Elkins, West Virginia, was shot by Jeffrey White. Police said that something went wrong between the pair after Simmons lent White a bunch of beanies to start a trading business. For those who weren't into collecting but also wanted to cash in on the Beanie Baby mania legally, there was a cottage industry associated with the toys. While no one was making the same kind of money as Warner, there were lots of people who made a decent living thanks to Beanie Babies. More and more people were looking to them for their income. Here's Zach Bizanet. The people who wrote the books and catalogs got made a lot of money, and some of the books sold millions of copies. Um, Les Fox, the Beanie Baby Handbook, I want to sold four million copies, and he self-published it and made millions and millions of dollars from it. Peggy Gallagher, who you heard from earlier, was among those who cashed in on the craze. Not only was she buying and selling beanies, she also published several books. Her first came out in 1997, and it was basically just a catalog of photos of every beanie she'd been able to accumulate so far. According to Bizanet, Peggy netted $200,000 that year and celebrated by buying herself a new Mercedes with a vanity license plate that read, Be Babies. Books, magazines, and websites were everywhere. There was even one website called Beandex, which was a scrolling daily news feed that listed the current prices for the 20 most collectible beanies. Collectors could monitor the Beandex much the same way investors monitor the fluctuations in the stock market. Because initially Ty wasn't providing any information, there was nowhere to go to find a master list of what beanies had been released and retired. So enterprising collectors took it upon themselves to keep the public informed. Mary Beth Soboleski from Chicago, a former IBM systems engineer, created Mary Beth's Beanie World magazine. At its peak in 1998, the magazine was thicker than glamour or fortune and was selling 650,000 copies a month. Well, we all know nothing lasts forever. And the first signs of decline came in January 1999, when Ty announced a series of retirements and nothing happened. No market swell, no value increase, nothing. Collectors panicked and took to eBay to sell the toys they'd been hoarding. It was the equivalent of a market sell-off flooding the market with a massive surplus of beanies. Their value, which was contingent on the illusion of scarcity, plummeted. That same day, Ty also announced the release of 24 new Beanie Babies. Normally, Ty released nine new beanies at a time. This was the largest release at one time, and it overwhelmed collectors. There were simply too many on the market. It was starting to feel impossible to have them all. 
And that was the beginning of the end. In a desperate bid to save a sinking ship, Ty made an announcement that stunned everyone. After this thing initially having caught him completely by surprise, and this being a bubble that was totally out of his control, it sort of happened by accident. He starts to develop this idea that, hey, maybe I am a genius. Maybe I can control it. And so he posts this announcement on his website that on New Year's, all Beanie Babies will be retired and that the Beanie Babies line will be discontinued. That's right. Every single Beanie Baby would be retired at the end of 1999. The announcement caused a media frenzy. The New York Times reported on September 1st, 1999, that as news spread out about the decision, internet chat rooms went crazy, bids flooded into online auction houses, and parents began to fret over what they would tell their children. The paper questioned whether the mass retirement was a gimmick to pump up profits of the pint-sized stuffed animals, which toy industry experts say had begun to lose some of their appeal. Advertising Age wrote that the move was over the top and smacked of the desperation of a company whose star product is about to be obliterated by a new product called Pokemon. Ty Warner, in his typical secretive fashion, didn't reveal why he made the decision, and even Ty's staff were caught off guard by the announcement. Some collectors rushed to stores to buy up remaining beanies, but others, they'd had enough with the games and they decided to stop collecting. Things were made even worse when just days before the planned discontinuation of all Beanie Babies, Warner changed his mind. On December 25th, 1999, he announced on the official website tie.com, After much thought, I am willing to put the fate of Beanie Babies in your hands. You make the decision. You have inspired the Beanie Babies line through your devotion to them. Warner announced that over the next 48 hours, people could call in to vote on whether Beanie Babies should be saved from extinction. The call would cost 50 cents, with all proceeds being donated to an AIDS charity. Following the campaign, Ty reported that nearly 210,000 votes were cast and 91% voted in favor of more beanies. But according to Zach Bizanette, the announcement that Beanie Babies were coming back barely made a ripple. The media had gotten bored with Warner and his beanies, and so had consumers. The Beanie Baby bubble had officially burst. In the years since, people have tried to figure out why beanies collapsed so dramatically. Anytime you have the collapse of of a speculative bubble, there's sort of two things. There's like the overarching cause is that the whole thing was stupid and was going to end badly at some point anyway, right? Like, cause, and, and, but what was interesting when I spoke with collectors and, and dealers and people who lost money on it, they seem to have been largely unaware of that even now. They would always point to these very specific things and they would say, look, this is what killed it. And I would ask them, okay, it's like, I, I, I get all that and that's all true. But if that hadn't happened, I mean, you think you're, you know, you think your bongo the monkey would be worth 10 grand now? That's Bizanet, and he cites that another issue was oversaturation. By 1999, there were just too many Beanie Babies flooding the market. 
And thanks to the internet, you could go on eBay and see for yourself. The illusion of scarcity had been broken. When the bubble burst, collectors are left with a product that was basically worthless. One of those affected was a former actor by the name of Chris Robinson. He had played Dr. Rick Weber on General Hospital and had gone all in on the fad. Starting around 1998, he invested approximately $100,000 in Beanie Babies. Robinson's son, who went on to study film at the University of Arizona, made a short documentary about his dad's obsession for a class project. He posted it online in 2009, and the story went viral for a time. Surrounded by thousands of beanies in boxes and on shelves, Robinson explained his attraction to the fad. This is like admitting to a drug addiction, you know. <laughs> you want to forget it, you don't want to be... You know, did I really do that? But it was fun. It was exciting because at least three of you, and then it was two of you, and then it was one of you, and then it was... None of you really were excited anymore, and that's when it started to... Well, what am I doing it for? Okay, I'm doing it for a college education, which so far has never taken place because I, I guess lost a lot of money. The ex-actor hoped the winnings would pay for his kids' college educations. But in the end, Robinson lost every penny and he still has over 20,000 Beanie Babies in his house. It's clear now with hindsight that the Beanie Baby craze was just that, a bubble. Much like another famous 90s one, the dot-com bubble. When initial public offerings of stock in the most hyped internet companies in Silicon Valley created a mad rush for shares. According to economist Charles Kindleberger, bubbles go through four stages. A hot new product hits the market, the market reacts with euphoria, there's a boom in speculation, the bubble bursts, and panic ensues. That sounds about right. According to economists David Tuckett and Richard Taffler, during a bubble, we formulate a collective hallucination of prosperity and fall victim to groupthink, a phenomenon where a significant chunk of society feverishly buys into a shared dream and ignores reality. Taffler recently told The Hustle that Beanie Babies and Bitcoin share a lot of similarities. Cryptocurrencies like Beanie Babies offer a promising alternative to classical investments. They're released in limited quantities, experts talk of their virtues, and in online communities, purchasers convince each other that they won't be affected by the wild fluctuations of a volatile market. Before the collapse, Ty Warner had already turned his attention away from plush toys to real estate. For his first big splurge in 1999, he plunked down a cool $275 million for the Four Seasons Hotel in New York. The crown jewel and his personal pet project was a lavish $41,000 a night penthouse with 360 degree views of Manhattan that he outfitted with fabrics woven with platinum and gold and equipped with the services of a personal butler, personal trainer and private chauffeur. The next year, for an undisclosed sum estimated to be as high as $200 million, Warner bought a five-parcel getaway compound in Montecito, California. Since then, he has bought other high-profile properties, 
including the Santa Barbara Four Seasons and the Montecito Country Club, all thanks to Beanie Babies. According to Forbes, today Ty Warner is worth $2.9 billion. His company is still making stuffed animals, including the popular line of big-eyed Beanie Boos. In 2013, Warner pleaded guilty to tax evasion after admitting to hiding up to $100 million in a Swiss bank account. He avoided jail time, though, when the judge sentenced Warner to two years of probation, 500 hours of community service, and a $100,000 fine. While the majority of Beanie Babies became worthless when the bubble burst, there are some rare beanies out there that are still worth money. Patty the Platypus, one of the original nine beanies, reportedly sold on eBay in February 2019 for $9,000. Patty, incidentally, was named after Ty Warner's girlfriend back in 1993. An original Peanut the Elephant is still one of the most sought-after beanies, valued recently at $2,500. The original Peanut was royal blue when released, but a few months later, the color was changed to baby blue, making Peanut the royal blue elephant a rarity. A rare Princess Diana bear that was made with different pellets has been listed on eBay for between $1,500 and $20,000, Peace the Bear can sell for about $5,000 on eBay, and Snort the Red Bull, around $6,000. And according to the website Mental Floss, a version of Valentino the Bear with several errors, like wrong color, wrong eyes, and nose, sold for $42,000 in January 2019. So if you do have a bin of Beanie Babies in your basement or your attic, you just might want to dust it off and have a look to see if you're sitting on a pile of cash. I wouldn't bank on it, though. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the great Beanie Baby bubble. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to Zach Bizanet and Peggy Gallagher. Peggy told me she's about to launch a brand new website, so you might want to go check it out. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.